the spirit of community. What do you do when your people has just made a golden calf, run riot and lost its sense of ethical and spiritual direction? How do you restore moral order, not just then in the days of Moses, but even now? The answer lies in the first word of today's parasha, Vayakev. But to understand it, we have to retrace two journeys that were among the most fateful in the modern world. The story begins in the year 1831, when two young men, both in their twenties, one from England, the other from France, set out on voyages of discovery that would change them and eventually our understanding of the world. The Englishman was Charles Darwin. The Frenchman was Alexis de Tocqueville. Darwin's journey aboard the Beagle took him eventually to the Galapagos Islands, where he began to think about the origin and evolution of species. Tocqueville's journey was to investigate a phenomenon that became the title of his book, Democracy in America. Although the two men were studying completely different things, the one zoology and biology, the other politics and sociology, as we'll see, they came to strikingly similar conclusions Actually, the same conclusion God taught Moses after the episode of the Golden Calf. Darwin, as we know, made a series of discoveries that led him to the theory known as natural selection. Species compete for scarce resources, and only the best adapted survive. The same he believed was true of humans also, but this left him with a serious problem. If evolution is the struggle to survive, if the strong win and the weak go to the wall, then everywhere ruthlessness should prevail. But it doesn't. All societies value altruism. People esteem those who make sacrifices for the sake of others. This, in Darwinian terms, doesn't seem to make sense at all, and he knew it. The bravest, most sacrificial people, he wrote in The Descent of Man, would on average perish in larger number than other men so that a noble man would often leave no offspring to inherit his noble nature. In other words, he'd die before having the chance to have children. It seems scarcely possible, he wrote, that virtue could be increased through natural selection, that is, by survival of the fittest. It was Darwin's greatness that he saw the answer, even though it contradicted his general thesis. Natural selection operates at the level of the individual, it's as individuals that we pass on our genes to the next generation. But civilization works at the level of the group. As Darwin himself put it, a tribe including many members who, from possessing in a high degree the spirit of patriotism, fidelity, obedience, courage, and sympathy, were always ready to give aid to each other and sacrifice themselves for the common good, would be victorious over most other tribes. And this would be natural selection. How to get from the individual to the group, he said, was at present much too difficult to be solved. The conclusion was clear, even though biologists to this day still argue about the mechanisms involved. The truth is that we survive as groups. One man versus one lion, lion wins. Ten men against one lion, the lion may lose. Homo sapiens, in terms of strength and speed, is a poor player when ranked against the outliers in the animal kingdom. But human beings have unique skills when it comes to creating and sustaining groups. We have language, we can communicate, we have culture, we can pass on our discoveries to future generations. Humans form larger 
and more flexible groups than any other species, while at the same time leaving room for individuality. We are not ants in a colony or bees in a hive. Humans are the community-creating animal. Meanwhile, in America, Alexis de Tocqueville, like Darwin, faced a major intellectual problem. His problem as a Frenchman was to try and understand the role of religion in democratic America. He knew that the United States had voted to separate religion from power by way of the First Amendment, the separation of church and state. So religion in America had no power. He assumed that it had no influence either. But what you discovered was precisely the opposite. As he put it, there is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. Now, this didn't make sense to him at all, and he asked Americans to explain it to him. They all give, gave him essentially the same answer, religion in America, and we're speaking here about the 1830s, not about today, does not get involved in politics. He asked clergymen why not. Again, they were unanimous in their answer. Politics is divisive. Therefore, if religion were to become involved in politics, it too would be divisive. That's why religion stayed away from party political issues. Topfield paid close attention to what religion actually did in America, and he came to some fascinating conclusions. It strengthened marriage, and he believed that strong marriages were essential to free societies. He wrote, as long as family feeling is kept alive, the opponent of oppression is never alone. It also led people to form communities around places of worship, encouraged people in those communities to act together for the sake of the common good. The great danger in democracy, said Tocqueville, is individualism. People come to care about themselves, not about others. As for the others, the danger is that people will leave their welfare to the government, a process that ends in the loss of liberty as the state takes on more and more responsibility for society as a whole. What protects Americans against these twin dangers, he said, is the fact that encouraged by their religious convictions, they form associations, charities, voluntary groups, what in Judaism we call chevrot, at first bewildered and then charmed. Tocqueville noted how quickly Americans form local groups to deal with the problems in their lives. He called this the art of association and said about it that it was the apprenticeship of liberty. All of this was the opposite of what he knew of in France, where religion in the form of the Catholic Church had much power, but very little influence. In France, he said, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in America, I found they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. So religion safeguarded the habits of the heart, essential to maintaining democratic freedom. It sanctified marriage in the home. It guarded public morals. It led people to work together locally to solve problems themselves rather than leave it to the government. If Darwin discovered that man is the community-creating animal, Tocqueville discovered that religion in America is the community-building institution. And it still is. Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam became famous in the 1990s for his discovery that more Americans than ever are going 10-pin bowling, but fewer are joining bowling clubs and leagues.
He took this as a metaphor for a society that's become individualistic rather than community-minded. He called it bowling alone. It was a phrase that summed up the loss of social capital, that is, the extent of social networks through which people help one another. Years later, after extensive research, Putnam revised his thesis. A powerful store of social capital still exists, but it's to be found in places of worship. What Putnam discovered is that frequent church and synagogue goers are more likely to give money to charity, whether the charity is religious or secular, more likely to do voluntary work for charity, give money to a homeless person, spend time with someone who's feeling depressed, offer a seat to a stranger, or help someone find a job. On almost every measure, they are demonstrably more altruistic than non-worshippers. Their altruism goes beyond this. Frequent worshippers are also significantly more active citizens. They are more likely to belong to community organizations, neighborhood and civic groups, and professional associations. They get involved, turn up, and lead. The margin of difference between them and the more secular is large. Tested on attitudes, religiosity, as measured by church or synagogue attendance, is the best predictor of altruism and empathy. Better than education, age, income, gender, or race. Perhaps the most interesting of Putnam's findings is that these attributes are related not to people's religious beliefs, but to the frequency with which they attend a place of worship. In other words, religion creates community. Community creates altruism, and altruism turns us away from the self and toward the common good. Putnam goes so far as to speculate that an atheist who went regularly to synagogue, perhaps because the spouse or her spouse was religious, would be more likely to volunteer or give to charity than a religious believer who prays alone. There's something about a religious community that makes it the best tutorial in citizenship and good neighborliness. What Moses had to do after the sin of the golden calf was vayakir, turn the Israelites into a kehillah, a community. He did this in the obvious sense of restoring order. When Moses came down the mountain and saw the calf, the terror says he saw the people were perua, wild, disorderly, chaotic, unruly, tumultuous. He saw they were running wild and Aaron had let them out of control. They were not a community, but a crowd. But he did it in a more fundamental sense, as we see in the rest of the Parsha. He began by reminding people of the laws of Shabbat. Then he instructed them to build the Mishkan, the sanctuary, as a symbolic home for good, for God. Why these two commands, Shabbat and the sanctuary, more than any other? Because Shabbat and the Mishkan are the two most powerful ways of building community. The best way of turning a diverse, disconnected group into a team is to get them to build something together, hence the Mishkan. The best way of strengthening relationships is to set aside dedicated time when we focus not on the pursuit of individual self-interest, but on the things we share by praying together, studying Torah together, and celebrating together. In other words, Shabbat. Shabbat and the Mishkan were the two great community-building experiences of the Israelites in the desert. And of course, more than this, in Judaism, community is essential to the spiritual life. 
Our holiest prayers require a minion when we celebrate or mourn. We do so as a community. Even when we confess, we do so together. Maimonides rules that one who separates himself from the community, even if he does not commit a transgression, but he simply holds himself aloof from the congregation of Israel, such a person has no share in the world to come. That's not how religion has always been seen. Plotinus called the religious quest the flight of the alone to the alone, in other words, the flight from the solitary individual to God. Dean Inge said that religion is what an individual does with his solitude. Jean-Paul Sartre notoriously said, hell is other people. In Judaism, it's the opposite. It is as a community, as a kehillah, that we come before God. For Judaism, the key relationship is not I and thou, but we and thou. So Vayakel is no ordinary episode in the history of Israel. It marks the essential insight to emerge from the crisis of the golden calf. We find God in community. We develop virtue, strength of character, and commitment to the common good in community. Community is local. It's society with a human face. It isn't government. It's not the people we pay to look after the welfare of others. It's the work we do ourselves together. Community is the antidote to individualism on the one hand and over-reliance on the state on the other. Darwin understood its importance to human flourishing. Tocqueville saw its role in protecting democratic freedom. Robert Putnam has documented its value in sustaining social capital and the common good. And it began in our parsha when Moses turned an unruly mob into a kehillah, a community.